0: Good morning, church, and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. So as we've already mentioned this morning, we have entered the Advent season, and although we're going to continue in our study of the book of Mark, where we find ourselves this morning is a particularly appropriate part of the book, excuse me, the first, because as we sung in, in uh, the second song that we sang, or excuse me, the first song we sang, talked about Christ coming down and joining us in our sadness. And traditionally, this is referred to as the humiliation of Christ. We sometimes think about Christ's humiliation as being the cross, as being the grave, and although that is the pinnacle of his humiliation, it's also true, and it's been long maintained, that the incarnation in total is humiliation. We think of humiliation as shame. We think of humiliation as, as being pointed at and being brought low, but it simply means to be brought low from where he sat at the right hand of the Father, where he was in perfect communion in heaven, to come down, to take on flesh, to endure what we endure, to be cold, to be hungry, to experience sickness and, and death. And as we'll see this morning, the uncleanliness of the state of mankind, that too is the humiliation of Christ, something that he endured so that he could be a perfect high priest, something he, can, he endured so that he could identify with our weaknesses. And so as we think about Advent, as we think about the anticipation of the incarnation, as we think about looking forward towards that manger that we celebrate this time of year, passages like today, looking at Christ's Among us, among sick, dirty, broken people, is a perfect reminder of why we think about and anticipate the incarnation. So look with me uh, right now, verse 25 of chapter 5. Mark 5, 25, this is the word of the Lord. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his garment. For she was saying, if I just, his word being his garments, I will be saved from this. May God be glorified from his word being read. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning not unlike this woman. We need healing, spiritual healing, yes, but we also need physical healing. Your word speaks of this in many ways, in many circumstances. And so, Lord, teach us, illuminate our, your word in our hearts and in our minds so that we may understand healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, But ultimately, the healing provided by you by which we are justified, by which we are declared righteous, by which we are able to be brought into relationship with your Son by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, one of the things that we focus on this time of year is decorations, is planning. Is gifts the budgeting that comes along with gifts? It is the busy schedules, and I've found that as as the years go on and as more comes into life, uh, the the buying the gifts is the easy part. It's finding time to buy the gifts. It is finding time to navigate the season that becomes difficult. And so, you, you might frequently hear criticisms about the consumer or materialist nature of the holiday. But one of the things that I think goes hand in hand with that is how we spend our time. How are we budgeting our time? How are we budgeting our uh, intentions? And, and, And quite clearly, how do we budget our affections? Are we making enough time to contemplate the reason for the season? It's not so much that we, we spend a ton of money all the other necessarily indicative of not caring. It's when we are doing that, when we're doing all the other things that are, we are doing, whether they be worthwhile or potentially not worthwhile, are we affording time? You know, this is one of the purposes of Advent. This is one of the, the reasons why we build this into our calendar, our liturgical calendar for the year of the, of the church. And this is why we also do our catechism. We build in these necessary points in order that we don't miss the big picture. That whether we feel crunched because of our budget, whether we feel crunched because of our time, whether we feel crunched because of just the overbearing nature and pace of life, we fit into that the most essential things that we need to know. We already had one catechism moment from the New City Catechism, going back to a much more ancient catechism, one that goes back nearly 500 years. we we'll look at the Heidelberg Catechism in question 35 this morning because it directly ties to the idea of Advent, but also to things that we ought to be paying attention to as we anticipate not only the Christmas season, but as we look to, as we read about, as we think about Christ's being among us. And what that means in the the dirty, gritty kind of times. Not just what we sometimes make sterile and pretty with the manger scene, although that certainly wasn't sterile and pretty, but also what we'll talk about today, Christ around sick people. So this is what it says in Heidelberg, question 35. It says, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And the answer is that God's eternal Son, who is a continuous, true, and eternal God, took upon himself the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might be the true seed of David, and unto his brethren in all things sin accepted. This is, church, the point of the incarnation. Christ taking before the flesh. Jesus, he could have come down a moment before the cross, told Rome, You need to crucify me because I need to take, make propitiation. And that would have, in one way, seemed to have covered the, the basis, seemed to have done what needs to be done. But that is not God's plan, and that is not the fullness of Christ's intercessory work and Christ's mediatorial work and Christ's life on earth. He is, as this question just said, need to take on the very nature of man and needed to be like his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And so part of that meant being with us. I don't know if you've ever had times where you've been in situations that are stressful, that are claustrophobic, that are just burdensome. If you've ever found yourself perhaps in the inner city, if you're maybe used to environs like these that we are surrounded with in Chester. And it feels oppressive and it feels busy. If you've ever walked out of the airport in a foreign country and the sounds and smells and languages are all different and you feel like you are being oppressed by just being out of your elements. If you've walked into an uncomfortable or a tense boardroom or conversation, this is, by definition, the experience of Christ entering into humanity. This, the perfection, the, 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 the excellence of being with the Father and then being on earth, a place where you can step on something sharp and it hurts your foot, where you can go four or five hours and your stomach reminds you that you need to eat, where the emotion of being around people brings tears to your eyes or a furrow to your brow. All of these things Christ experienced. And in our, our text this morning, we're going to see him encounter two people. And he does so in what we've, we've already touched on a few times as we've been studying the gospel of Mark, what, how Mark records it in what we would call that I'm a sandwich. Theologians call it a Markan sandwich. You cannot order this at any deli that I'm aware of. But it's, we have two stories, one that frames a center story. And they both have the same theme. They both have the same idea. But by having one story start and another story start and finish and then have the original story be completed, it reemphasizes to us the purpose that is being communicated. So this isn't simply by happenstance Mark saying, oh, he's doing this thing with this one guy and this other woman comes along. Oh, I need to remember to finish the story about the first guy. There's a purpose here. And why is it that we meet Jairus and his daughter Why is it that we meet this woman with this hemorrhage? Why? Because they demonstrate the same themes, themes that we will look at this morning. Firstly, that Jesus has authority to heal. Jesus has the authority to heal. We've talked about his authority over nature. We've talked about his authority over sin, but he also has the authority to heal. Jesus, secondly, can heal what others can't, and I think this is important, what others can't even fathom. Jesus can heal what others can't, but he can heal in ways that completely exceeds all expectations of those around him. And thirdly, Jesus heals bodies. He he heals physical maladies, but he does so not simply for the sake of making the sick well. He does so for the sake of faith. And what does that mean? We'll talk about that momentarily. But let's get back to our text, and we'll actually back up from where we started this morning. So look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, and when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, real quick, as a reminder, they were on one side of the lake, they crossed the lake, seemingly so that Jesus could calm a the storm. They arrived the other side of the lake, seemingly so Jesus could exercise these demons out of this man just to get back in the boat and go back over. Talk about having a time crunch. And so it says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come. By that coming, you may lay your hands on her so that she will be saved and live. So we meet Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue official, and this ought to be something that stands out to us, and probably, and to a certain degree, stands out to the original audience, because a synagogue official, although not necessarily a Pharisee, would have been, in some way, shape, or form, aligned with the Pharisee, and in, in, in what we see by that, and what kind of starts this story, these, these two stories that are intertwined, is that you have another person pleading with Jesus that you wouldn't have expected. Remember, we saw the demons pleading with Jesus last week. We saw the Gentile uh, farmers and, and crowds and townspeople pleading with Jesus. And now here we have a synagogue official, somebody that probably wouldn't be the kind of person that would have aligned with Jesus, his message, his apostles also pleading with him. This recurring theme in Mark ought to make us see and understand That Jesus is the kind of person who projects his authority, making those that we wouldn't even initially or automatically assume come to him, come to him with requests. And so here we have Jairus, certainly in a desperate situation. Maybe he's coming to Jesus because he's run out of options. Maybe he comes to Jesus because he has a seed of faith. Maybe he comes to Jesus because someone put him up to it but Jairus, this man who seemingly had control because he was essentially the steward of the synagogue, is now coming to Jesus. So Mark begins the story this way in verses 21 through 24, and then he shifts because as they're walking, as Jesus is dying, following Jairus, as he's going towards his home to meet his daughter who is dying, we see an interruption. So verse 24, and he, Jesus, went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his garment. For she was saying, if I just touch his garments, I will be saved from this. So before we we go on further, I just want to set the stage for what's happening. Jesus, again, is going from meeting Jairus to Jairus' house, and he's walking through a crowd, and as we've already seen, as we saw last week, crowds are beginning to form wherever Jesus goes. And this is happening even after he has given explicit instruction to his apostles, to those who are following him, to those he heals, to those whom demons are exercised out of to not tell anyone about this. This is the nature of his renown. So we've talked about before and we'll inevitably talk about again. Why is Jesus telling people to not talk about him? It's because he has a job, he has a ministry, he has a path, he has a, a, a trajectory of his ministry. And simply by the nature of him doing the things he's doing, he has, all sides are closing him on, on him and his apostles. And so even without people telling, people are following him. And so for Jesus to do what he needs to do, he is trying to maintain a little bit of a lower profile, and it's not working because of the nature of the things that Jesus is doing. And so who's coming around Jesus? The crowds are. But there's somebody in the crowd that's coming around Jesus, and this exemplifies what we mentioned earlier on, Jesus coming to take part in our life, becoming, taking part of all we can take part of, without, although without sin about the nature of the humiliation of the humiliation. Because this woman is the kind of woman that everyone else didn't want to be around. You say, that sounds mean. It is mean, but you have two things happening here. One, you have human nature. We don't want to be around the person who's hacking up a lung. We don't want to be around the person who's sneezing and gets on us. We don't want to be around the person that smells a little bit different. We don't want to be around the person that even looks a little bit different. We don't want to be around that person. And you say, oh, no, not me. Well, that's because we're with all these nice, clean people this morning. But it is human nature. If there's multiple choices on the subway, the subway, it's like a car, only it's in a city. You'll have to get online to learn about that. Where are you going to sit It's human nature, and and even the best people struggle with this, and certainly the worst people struggle with this, and I think we can appreciate that because we all have these intentions in our heart. But the second thing that we have to keep in mind is that there is the bad side of human intention, but there's also an attempt at maintaining the law. The law is still in effect, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. But the ceremonial law meant that someone with a communicable disease had to be on the outskirts. Now, of course, as we've talked about, and as you, you certainly know from understanding the, the, kind of the, some of the dynamics of the first century that Jesus and his apostles found himself in, the Pharisees and kind of that mindset put those people at an extra hedge beyond where the law mandated so yes, the law did mandate that people who had communicable diseases, we think about leprosy, we think about the, 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 the presence of blood and what that intended, and how there were certain things that the law rightly and justly maintained needed to be held to keep the camp, keep the people, keep the, the assembly clean. That was not being done. It was done being, by the spirit of the law, but now with the spirit of the law. As you go back to, and we're not going to spend time doing this this morning, but you go back to the law, you look at a book like Leviticus, and the intention is not to keep people away. It's to keep people clean and give those who have to go away an opportunity to be cleansed, to be restored. The nature of the law church was always about restoration. But you have these two things at play. One, that, that ugly part of all of our hearts that sees dirty and says, I'm clean, they're dirty. And the second thing is you have the attempts to maintain some semblance of what the law taught. And so consequently, you have this woman, and look at the language that, that scripture uses about her. It says, a hemorrhage for 12 years, endured much at the hands of many physicians, spent all she had, was not helped at all, grew worse. All this hyperbolic, superlative language about this woman's plight. She was desperate because she was sick, because she was unclean, and because she spent all she had, she was poor. This is not only a picture of our state as people, but this is a picture of us, of those we know, of those we love, at their lowest point. This is not a far-off woman, halfway across the world, 2,000 years ago. This is people that we know. This is people in our community. This is people that sometimes we keep at arm's length because it's just on the news. But this is the plight of people today, church. And notice, something else is exemplified here. I mentioned it earlier in the superlative language. She had endured much of the hands of many physicians and spent all she had and was not helped at all. So as we talk about Christ's authority... We need to understand that this is being contrasted with mankind's futility. Christ's authority here is being contrasted with man's futility. Now, we ought to be so thankful for the work that can be done by medication, by, by surgical intervention. We love all sorts of treatment and how important and valuable and how beneficial that's been to all of us and those that we love But ultimately, at the end of the day, these things are secondary to the power of Christ and not simply in a priority, but in two completely different realms. So we have this woman and her plight. It's not only a plight of sickness. It's a plight of disenfranchisement. It's a plight of of being othered by the culture. But verse 27, as she... After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his garments. For she was saying, if I just touch his garments, I will be saved from this. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she knew within her body that she had been healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around to the crowd and was saying, who touched my garments? And his disciples were saying to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he was looking around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and was told, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. What a remarkable interaction. What a beautiful story. What a quick turnaround. This is where the nature of Mark's writing, the nature of Mark's gospel communicates something so important for us. And, and this was touched on earlier as Joe was sharing uh, uh, regarding the nature of sanctification. Sometimes sanctification takes big steps. Sometimes big things happen quickly. We, we, maybe it's because of our faith. Maybe it's because of where we are in the 21st century. We expect things to happen in small drips and dribs and dry outs. Our God, our Jesus, is a God who can do big things very quickly in ways that we look around. There is nothing else we can attribute this to except for the power of God. Are we praying those prayers? Are we praying those? You know, I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, something we do with our mouths. It's something we do because of, of, of maybe being uncomfortable. But when we pray, how often do we say the word just? God, will you just do a little, just do, I know I do it, but think about that. What is that communicating? Will you you just, like, please a little bit? How are we commanded to pray? Yes, we're commanded to pray for our daily bread. Yes, we're commanded to pray for little things like forgiveness. It's not a little thing. Are we praying big prayers? Later on in the Gospels, we see countless examples of Jesus talking about people who are just pouring out their hearts, pouring out their needs, asking, knocking, pleading. Christ is able to do these great things, church, and this is not something that was for then. This is something that is for now. But notice what happens. We have an unclean woman who touches Jesus. If you know anything about the Mosaic Code, what has now happened to Jesus? Jesus is now unclean. Think about that. Do we, do, we, do we often think about that when we think about this story? We think about the amazing thing that Jesus did when he healed this woman, but what happened to Jesus? Jesus was, was you know, the, the incarnation was a pivotal point in, in essentially changing the dynamics of understanding the ceremonial law. The things that were expected of Israel were now being fulfilled in Christ. There's so much we could say uh, on that. But what we see here is God himself, the very God who inspired and by his holy hand wrote to Moses not only the Ten Commandments but the rest of the law regarding these specific ways that cleanliness ought to be maintained is now being made unclean according to those standards by this woman. But of course. The uncleanliness of this woman is is only an exaggerated version of whether it's cleanliness that we all have, that all mankind shares, that all of us, whether it be a sniffly nose or whether it be a condition like this woman has, it's an uncleanliness that Christ entered into and shared and now willingly took on by being in this woman, in this crowd's presence. I think it's worth touching on before we kind of get back to this. Does Jesus have supernatural clothing? I mean, it's worth talking about. She thought, I want to touch his garments. She touched his garments, and she was made well. I mean, is this one of those deals where we should all fly to Italy or Turkey or wherever they have some big fancy Orthodox cathedral and find that hem of that garment that they've been claiming for 2,000 years it was part of Jesus' robe, and we should all touch it to make sure that, our, you know, our backs feel better or other more serious maladies are cured? I mean, is that what's happening here? is important to think about, because if it's true, I mean, I think we ought to raise some money and send some people places. But that's not what's happening here. This was actually a, a, a kind of an idea or an, an assumption that existed in the ancient world, where people thought that they could essentially re- receive some of the glory of kings, of prophets, of powerful people by touching their clothing. I mean, you even see that today. Whenever you have a, a dignitary come into town, what do people want to do? They want to shake his hand. Why? Why do you want to shake his hand? Because it, it means something. Okay, what does it mean? I don't know. But it means, I can say I shook someone, I, can, I shook the governor's hand. Back in, you can tell your children, in 2023, you shook the governor's hand. You know, the, these interactions, they, they communicate something. And I think that, that further kind of puts a a fine point on the importance, both the perceived importance and the real importance of proximity and being with people. What are we going to do in a matter of weeks as we have holiday celebrations? Yes, we're going to send cards, but we're not going to Zoom our friends and family. We're going to be present with our friends and family. Who is valued to that? There's value with touching. There's value with holding. Whether it be a newborn infant or someone who is passing from this world, there is value in touching. And that was this assumption this woman thought that it would actually go beyond that, that this man who had extreme power, if I could just get close to him. Now, there was no power in Jesus' garments, but there was power in Jesus. There was no power in Jesus' clothing, but there was power in Jesus. And Jesus' power was given to this woman because of her faith. Jesus' power was given to was given to this woman because of her faith look at what it says again in verse 34 he said to her daughter your faith has saved you go in peace and be healed of your affliction did she have perfect faith no she didn't have perfect faith she had maybe an outsized superstitious kind of component to her faith because of the garments she didn't understand completely the nature of the messianic promise She certainly didn't have a picture of the substitutionary penal atonement that Christ was going to pay in a matter of years as he goes to the cross. She did not know these things. She just knew that Jesus was the answer when everything else was insubstantial. And this little seed was the kind of faith that God gives us that blossoms and grows into a great, great tree. This is what saved this woman? Jesus. Jesus saved this woman, her faith being the instrument of this salvation. Notice what she, he says in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, this is important because what Jesus is saying, he, and the, the salvation is used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. But what Jesus is saying here is that her spiritual healing, her spiritual awareness is the thing was the men led to her physical healing. Her spiritual healing was the most important thing, and that was part and parcel of what he did when he healed her physically. We'll talk more about how these things work together in a moment, but notice that Jesus ties them together here, that her spiritual healing is what ultimately led to her physical healing. So this is this woman. And, and notice, another thing that she does, I, just, I know we have a lot to cover, and we, and, but, but this is important. Look at verse 33. This woman has been in the business for the last 12 years of laying low, of covering herself, of staying outside of polite, clean company. And when Jesus calls out saying, who, who, this, who is this? Although he knew who this is. He said, who is this? Look at what he says, she says in verse 33. Verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told the whole truth. Her gratitude is now outweighing all of her shame. Her thankfulness for her healing is greater than any sort of social awkwardness that she would be incurring by standing up or by kneeling down in this large crowd that is still assembled. Do you have this kind of gratitude for Christ? do you have this sort of thankfulness for what he's done? It might not be this kind of situation, but it very well may be using his name in conversation. It very well may be knowing that you have that opportunity to perhaps give your testimony, to perhaps tell somebody about Jesus, to say, can I pray for you? And is the gratitude of everything that God has done for you Somebody saying his name to you days, weeks, generations ago, and now you knowing him. Somebody bringing up his name in prayer and that impact that it had on you to draw him into your kingdom. Are you able to have that kind of gratitude for him, even irrespective of the shame that faith about in the present circumstances? This woman is a great picture of faith, and a great picture of what faith can do. And although the healing is important, she didn't heal herself. What she turned around and did, she had control over. And what she turned around and did was stand up when society and all those around her and what had been ingrained into her was to sit down. It's a remarkable transformation, one that in many ways rivals that of her healing. A boldness, a changed heart, an ambition to be doing what she knew she had to do as one who'd been transformed by Christ. But just as quickly as we meet this woman, in verse 35, the scene shifts. So they're still talking. While he was still speaking, it says in verse 35, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came into the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly crying and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and crying? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. By putting them all, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. Immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he he said that some food should be given to her to eat. This is the conclusion of that first story. Jesus meets Jairus. Jesus meets this woman, and now Jesus goes and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, resuscitates her back to life. Jairus' daughter is healed. Hi. Some interesting things that we see here. First of all, Jesus ties the idea of faith to it again. Notice that he said in verse 35, uh, 34 to the woman, daughter, your faith has saved you. In verse 36, when, when um, Jairus' daughter is told, is, he finds out Jairus' daughter has said, he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. These are passages about healing. These are passages about Christ's authority over our bodies, but they are ultimately passages about faith and how he uses faith in amazing ways. So this is the first thing. We see that both of these passages are about faith. And what does Jesus do? In verse 40, those who are skeptical, who have the opposite of faith, they begin laughing at him, which kind of illustrates the fact that these are probably professional mourners. This is something that still exists today. You go to some cultures, and if you're having a funeral, you have the people that are going to be dignified to make sure the food is taken care of, to make sure that the the casket gets from point A to point B. But you also have professional mourners that come in that wail. I don't know if they wail louder for a greater fee, if there's tears and wailing. I'm not sure how that works. We don't have that in our culture. However, that exists today, and that existed then, where they had professional mourners, so professional mourners who could turn on the tears at the drop of a hat could also turn them off. They were, making a, they were crying and wailing in verse 38. Jesus says, she's not dead. And in verse 40, they begin laughing at him. This underlies the fact that perhaps their initial emotion wasn't necessarily genuine. But what does he do? He puts them all out in verse 40. Jesus not only has had people pleading with him over the last few chapters, he's also casting things out. Remember, he cast out the storm. We, we, we talk about him stilling the storm, but the language actually indicates he rebuked and cast out the storm over the sea. He cast out the legion of out of the man who is in the tombs, and now he is casting out, literally casting out the skeptics. Again, fe- healing seems to be the motif of this text. But the language indicates this is about faith and about not believing. And so he casts them out. And once more, look what happens. In verse 41, he takes the child by the hand. It seems sweet. It seems kind. It seems like the thing that you would be doing, the compassionate thing that Jesus would do. But what does this do to Jesus? Once more, Advent, incarnation, humiliation, being unclean. He had just been touched by a woman with a, with, with a kind of disease that would keep you away, and now he's touching a dead body. These are the kind of details that would stand out to the mind of that first century Jew hearing this. This is unthinkable. Not only has Jesus been touched by a sick person, he's now touching a dead person. But once again, in the manger, this is what Jesus began to do. He began to be around those who are unclean. And so it is no great thing for him to touch someone who is sick or touch someone who has just died. But of course, she doesn't stay dead. Jesus raises this little girl from the dead, raises this child from the dead. And a miracle that reminds us of of the the miracle that Elijah did when raising this desperate widow's son from the dead. Jesus now, as the better Elijah, the best prophet, the pinnacle of God's revelation, now heals this little girl. She doesn't just stand up. She walks. And to put a fine point on it, she eats. If you were just dead, what would you want to do? Notice that, actually this is interesting, this this girl eats to kind of prove that she's actually alive, what do the Gospels record Jesus doing after he's been raised from the dead? He's eating to prove that he is alive. Dead people don't eat. So here we have these two stories. What is the point? Hopefully I've made the point very clear. Healing is the point, but only in the sense that Jesus has authority to heal, what is not being communicated here, church, and I want to make this abundantly clear, and we'll address this as we, as we wrap up. What is not being said here is that this woman had enough faith that she could be healed. Or Jairus had just enough faith that, she, that his daughter could be brought back from the dead. That's not what's being communicated. Is there a relationship between faith and healing? Yes, but... We have to ask the same question. Is there a relationship between Jesus' clothing and healing? And we would all say, well, no. We, we can't find a scrap of, of Jesus' garments. We can't find a piece of wood from the cross at some monastery somewhere. And I think if you took all the monasteries and all of the sanctuaries around the world that had pieces of the cross of Christ, I think they'd say it's something like, you know, a 75-foot cross because somehow it's multiplied over the generations. Is there a relationship between Jesus' clothing and healing? The answer is no. That part of that woman's intention that was centered on faith in Christ is what made her well. But it wasn't even her faith, it was Christ himself. So what is the purpose of, of Mark, but what is the importance of Jesus connecting faith and healing in this passage? What is the purpose of Jesus connecting faith and healing in this passage? Because this is something that has been abused, has been misunderstood, but it's also in the text. We have to deal with it head on. And I want to make sure that we understand that before we wrap up this morning. So once again, the things that in in priority, Jesus has the authority to heal. Jesus has the authority to heal. He has the authority to heal in in this day, in, in the first century, and he has the authority to heal today. Jesus hasn't laid aside his control over the demonic realm, over the natural realm, over the, our bodies in the last 2,000 years. Jesus has the authority to heal. Second, anecdotal, Jesus can heal what others can't and can't even fathom. We hear anecdotal evidence of that. The person who scanned said X on one day, and then after the prayer meeting, after hands were laid on them, then they go to, the, to get, receive a scan the next day, and the thing's not there anymore. We've heard those anecdotal stories, and those are helpful. Those are encouraging to our faith. But ultimately, it's God's objective word that says that Jesus can heal what others can't, and he can heal what others can't even fathom. And thirdly, although Jesus heals bodies, he does so with faith in mind. He does this to show the results of faith. So that's true. He does this to encourage faith. And he does so to give faith. So the, the, the main error when it comes to connecting faith and healing is you have to have enough faith to be made well. That your terminal illness, you're going to have to have faith that rivals one of the saints that has a statue to get made well. And the rest of us, maybe our sniffles will be made better because of our faith this is a great error, because this is just one aspect. Jesus does indicate that the results of this woman's faith is what led to her healing, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's a one-to-one faith-to-healing ratio that each person has in their life, because Jesus also uses faith, excuse me, also uses healing in the similar ways that he uses the other miracles, whether it be the the multiplication of food, whether it be the control over nature, whether it be casting out demons, to encourage the faith of those who experience it, or by extension, those who read it, and to give faith to those who experience it, and by extension, those who read it. The profound impact of the healing of these people led to salvation and inevitably has led to the salvation of countless others in the thousands of years since this has happened. This was not simply a one-on-one thing done in Jairus' daughter, Jesus, and this woman. This was done in a public setting, and not only was it done in a public setting, it was done in a way that was then recorded by not only Mark, but other gospel writers to be providentially given to the church for the purpose of encouraging faith and giving faith. The intention of these texts is not to say this is the formula to heal your ailments. The intention of this text is to say, God can heal, so have faith in God. Faith is not about the one with faith or the amount of faith, but the object of that faith, and that faith being in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes this point clear in Matthew 17. The apostles are unable to drive out demons, and he says, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus makes it plain and clear here, and in ways that, again, sometimes get bent in in these narrative pieces that we just read about how does faith necessarily turn into the results of faith. Jesus makes it clear it's not about the amount of faith, it's about the one you have faith in. And the one you have faith in ultimately has a will that is beyond our understanding and beyond our comprehension and will inevitably happen in ways that we don't expect, anticipate, or necessarily even want. But we have that trust. And if if God is sovereign enough to be incarnate and God is sovereign enough to save us, we have to have the same sort of trust in His sovereignty that the ailments that he brings about, the sickness and the sadness and even the death he brings about is for his glory and for our good in a way that we can't even comprehend. The danger comes not only to our bodies, not only to our own personal well-being, but to our faith and our theology when we say X amount of faith is needed for Y amount of healing. Perhaps the, the greatest purveyor of this falsehood and on the scene today and for the last 25 or 30 years as Benny Hinn, I could call out countless names of countless people who have profited thousands and millions of dollars off of those who simply want to be made well. Benny Hinn goes on these crusades. Benny Hinn goes on these speaking tours in this million-dollar jet. And the message preached by Benny Hinn and by many others like him in the word faith movement or the seed faith movement, the name it and claim it movement, is that you are going to get healed in one of two ways. One is you give enough. That's their preferred way. Secondly is you have to have more faith. And all the the financial bilking of needy and desperate people is wretched and abominable and ultimately damnable. Tying faith and healing together in the way that they do is detrimental not only to the individual, but to the testimony of all those who claim Christ. Justin Peters, a, 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 an author and an apologist who is, has cerebral palsy that confines him to a wheelchair, who initially looked to this kind of um, these kind of, quote-unquote, ministries for healing, and then was essentially delivered out of these deliverance ministries, writes this. He says, "'If Hinn's logic is followed, "'as it is with untold millions,' If one is sick, then that person's healing is contingent upon his or her own faith. If healing does not come, the person is left with the unavoidable conclusion that it is his fault, his walk with God is not pure enough, his faith is not strong enough. At the most basic level, church, that this means, that verses we read, passages we just read, are to be interpreted literally, which means according to the literature, encouraging us to understand that these are descriptive passages about individuals, but prescriptive passages about how we ought to have faith in Christ. We don't believe in Jesus so that we will get better. We don't go into hospitals saying, every one of you needs to convert Convert now. We've got the grape juice, we've got the crackers, we even got a baptismal font that we brought in. Get converted and then you'll be better. No one has that mentality in this room, I would hope. Very, no one in, 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 in Orthodox Christianity has had that mentality because we understand there is not a one-to-one correlation with the faith and the healing. Healing comes, again, to encourage faith and to give faith. But we also have to acknowledge that faith includes healing, but it's that ultimate healing that comes at the end of the age the ultimate healing that comes of our bodies. Knowing, as as it says in this well-known passage in Revelation, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. So is healing the result of faith? And I would say unequivocally, yes absolutely the healing of your body is part and parcel included with an an essential part of your faith but not because of your faith but because of the object of your faith and we can never confuse those two things your salvation is not because of you spiritually the ultimate restoration of your body in the new heavens and the new earth and your glorified being is not because of you either Church, I just want to make this clear before we close. We cannot use passages like this to say, I must not have the same kind of faith of this woman because I'm not better, because my loved one's not better. I must not even have the kind of faith of the synagogue official because my loved one passed away. That would be an inappropriate, incorrect, bad reading of the text. What this text communicates to us is that miracles attest to the incarnate Christ's authority. He had authority over health. He had authority authority even over life and death. He had authority over the natural world. He had authority over spirits because his authority is an authority over a kingdom that is all encompassing. What was breaking in at this moment as Jesus was walking through a crowd of people is what would eventually be made manifest as he gave his great commission to his apostles. That all authority was given to him on heaven and earth. There is not one aspect of your life, your mental life, your emotional life, your relational life, your financial life, your spiritual life, or your physical life that is not under the sovereign hand of God and his authority. And part of that acknowledges that he can do great things there. But part of that also means acknowledging that he has a plan that might not be the script that we want to write the kind of prosperity, the kind of ease, the kind of simplicity, the kind of smooth life that we would have because what we are combating right now is the effects of sin, our own sin, the sin of others around us and ultimately the sin of the world. But miracles, church, they attest to Jesus' authority. And so how does faith tie into this? And we'll close with this and Joe actually read this this morning already in the catechism. Our faith is not what makes this happen. Faith is, as the Reformers and many others uh, in church history said, faith is the instrument by which we receive his authority. His authority exists whether we believe it or not, but we are able to receive that in a way because of the faith that he gives us. Because by grace, we have been saved through faith. And this, the, fa- the, 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 the faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, so that no one may boast. Church, these are hard passages. They're essential passages for us. Because there's the, there's the Sunday school version of these texts where we can look and say, wow, Jesus healed people. And that's a good thing for us to know. It's a good thing for our children to know. It's a good thing for the world to know but there's a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose and a deeper value that is communicated even in the structure of how we find these things in the revealed word of God's scripture. And what we walk away with is not some sort of formula. Say this prayer, believe this much, give this much, do these things, get what you want. We walk away with the knowledge that Christ has the authority to heal that Christ can heal what others can't, can't even fathom, can't even see, both physical but also spiritual. And that as Jesus heals bodies, he does so for a greater purpose, one of faith, one of giving faith, one of encouraging faith. So the idea of bodies, the idea of faith, ought to be present in our hearts and minds as we take the Lord's Supper Again, just like we said, there's nothing that is going to happen to your body when you do this. As we've mentioned before, if anything, this will whet your appetite. The, 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 the warmth of, of the wine may, may bring a spark of gladness to you. The cracker may desire, allow you to desire having the Lord's Supper again or something to that effect. But the true benefit, the true benefit of the Lord's Supper is a contemplative moment in these next few minutes as we come up and receive them. And then as we take them, and we take them by faith, then we have the promise, not the, the maybe, not the if we do things right, we have the promise that Christ's presence is with us spiritually as we take this. And so this is a nourishment that is a one-to-one correlation. Faith wrought uh, taking of the supper will lead to being present. Christ's being present with us in a special way, a nourishing way. So contemplate these things, pray on these things as John comes up to lead us and as we come and receive the elements. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are embodied. Our bodies are not inherently bad. They were created and you called them good. Your Son took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was not bad. He was not only good, He was perfect. But Lord, we are frail. Whether it be that tickle in the back of our throat that we know is either seasonal allergies or a cold coming on, or whether it be the very person that is forefront in our minds, struggling this morning, We know that our bodies are compromised because of sin. But Lord, you have made it so clear that your son is victorious. It's not that he will be victorious. It's not that he might be victorious. It's that he is victorious. And that promise that was read earlier from your revealing the ultimate destiny of all those who are in you that every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It is a sure thing that our hope is founded in the objective work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that gives us hope. It gives us hope, not in some sense that we forget about the present trials and the present troubles and the present turmoil of our lives, but it gives us hope Anchoring our lives and the lives of our loved ones, the lives of those who are hurting today, and at something not distant in the future, but something at only hair's breadth away—the presence of your Son, a new creation being inaugurated at the Incarnation, and that will one day be consummated, bringing an end to these things. Give us hope. Give us patience. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.